This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Wow, good morning, everyone. Wow, what a good day. This is my favorite season, so I always feel very happy during fall. Um, So my name is Jacqueline Piace. Way to go with the last name. (laughs) It's normally, normally people say peace, but that's okay. That's a pretty good last name too. It's such an honor to be able to share with you this morning. If you don't know who I am, I've called Journey Church my home church for about four years now. And I'm normally here on the worship team, but today we're switching things up a little bit. So I grew up in small town Saskatchewan. Whoa, hey, hey you guys, we're, we probably know a lot of the same people. <laughs> but I grew up in small, small town Saskatchewan and I moved to Calgary about nine years ago for school and I've been here ever since. So I grew up with a mixed heritage. My mom's side of the family is Austrian and super Austrian. Like, like this part of my family, every year for Christmas, we make schnitzel, not turkey. And, and, and strudel and spätzle. I don't know if you're German, but they are very good dishes. And I grew up learning German and it was a really rich part of my upbringing. On my dad's side of the family, I am Ukrainian and Soto which if you don't know what that is, that's a First Nations people group from Saskatchewan, and we also often call ourselves Anishinaabe. So I didn't grow up with my Soto culture like I did with my Austrian culture. My grandma, or my kukum, which means grandma in our language, she helped my parents to raise us. She lived in the same community as we did. She, she helped us get ready for school every morning, but we didn't grow up with our language or our culture. And I now realize that to be because of colonization. And it's a really big pain point for me. So today we're talking about reconciliation. And it's a topic that's really near and dear to my heart. So we are on Treaty 7 territory. And it's a gift to be visiting here. And I want to acknowledge the original peoples and caretakers of this land. The Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising of the Siksika, the Bigani, the Kainai First Nations, as well as the Sutana First Nations, and the Nistoni Nakoda, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Goodstoni First Nations. And I also want to acknowledge our Métis brothers and sisters who also call this territory home. Now, why do I say all of this? Why do we do land acknowledgments, you might be wondering. It's not just a formality because today's topic is on reconciliation. I do this because I feel it is my duty and my joy as a Christian, as a believer, to walk in a way that always honors others, that stubbornly rejects apathy towards the stories of others, and that runs from a self-focused worldview. Acknowledging the land that I am on grounds me and places me rightly as a piece, a part, a chapter of this beautiful narrative that our creator has given us. No more, no less. I'm equally humbled and I'm empowered. It's a paradox of our faith. I also acknowledge these things because it's an important journey of healing that we need to take as as Canadians. We've inherited a really ugly history. 
There's no way around that. Our weekly gathering here on this, in this church is because of a treaty that was signed in 1877, whose terms and promises were never fully honored. Our homes, our properties, our workplaces are where they are because of the displacement of Indigenous peoples on reservations. Our society is structured and built on the oppression of Indigenous peoples. And one aspect of this oppression we honoured and remembered two weeks ago, the residential school system on, on Orange Shirt Day. Now, I don't have time to dive into the history today or to talk about the injustice and I'll be giving a workshop actually in the next two months here on that. But I would encourage you, if, this is, if any of this sounds new to you or unfamiliar, please learn. There are so many resources out there. But today I want to align our heart postures to go on this road of healing in a good way. And I also just want to reconnect with all of you. I know that was a really heavy way to start the sermon, but this is going to be a message of a hope, I promise, so we can kind of loosen up a little bit. I could see everyone in, the, in here kind of, ugh. So we're going to take a deep breath. Today is a message of hope. Okay? Are we all in the car together? Yes? Yes? Okay. I just needed to check. So like I said, I feel like the subject is, is hard, and I think for a lot of us it comes with a lot of pain and guilt. Um, but I want to start here first. There's a, a quote, quote by an Indigenous educator, Nikki Sanchez, and she says this, The history is not your fault, but it absolutely is our responsibility. So we need to gather the courage to face this, not just as Canadians, but most importantly as believers. And I say all of this because I believe with every fiber of my being that reconciliation is our sacred call as believers. But we've lost sight of what that means with politics and, and, and campaigns and marketing, but it's the bedrock of our faith. So to give you a bit of a roadmap for today, for those of you who are itching to get to lunch already, I'm going to go through the biblical narrative of what reconciliation looks like, and then I'm going to give us five tips or steps to ap apply reconciliation in our life. So to understand reconciliation, we need to start page one of the Bible, Genesis 1.27. God created man in his image. He created male and female in his image. In the beginning... God created mankind in his image. Obviously, that's what the quote says on there. This is a theological concept known as imago Dei, image of God. And this means that we are all image bearers of God, of creator himself, which also means that all humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness, no matter who they are. Each person has inherent worth and value simply because of who we are created by. So page one, God created Adam and Eve in his image. At the beginning of creation, humans are set apart as the image of God, as God's own representatives, being in perfect communion with the divine creator, having, having inherent worth and value, who will steward and care for his creation by God's definition of good and evil. But then we go to page two, and it gets a little bit worse. If you're not familiar with our creation story, God tells Adam and Eve that they can eat from any fruit from the garden except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the humans, Adam and Eve, are deceived and they choose to eat from the tree in order to try to be like God and understand good and evil on their own terms. 
His image bearers redefine evil to fit their own understanding. And so begins a pattern in the biblical narrative of humanity consistently redefining good and evil to their own advantage, often at the expense of others. But God, praise God, he's not easily derailed. A few pages later in Genesis, he calls a man named Abraham and his descendants to be his chosen people, to return to their identities as image bearers of God, to be his representatives, to bless the world. Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Which, and I, I want to pause here because we throw this word righteousness around all the time. And I think, and I grew up in the church, so I kind of just thought this meant being an extra good person. Like you wear like a button-up shirt to church. You don't cuss. You definitely don't speed. Not calling anyone out. But that's not what righteousness, righteousness really means. The biblical word for righteousness is sedekah. Don't come at me for my pronunciation. Okay? You can email D- Pastor Dave. Um, so the word for righteousness, sedeka, is more specific. It refers to the religious obligation to, what it, to do what is right and just. Theologian Tim Mackey describes sedeka as an ethical standard that refers to the right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God, with the God-given dignity that they deserve. Now let's shift to the word justice. The word justice in Hebrew is mishpat. And mishpat can refer to uh, retributive justice, meaning if you steal or lie, you face the consequences. But more often in the Bible, it actually refers to restorative justice. So it means going a step further, actually seeking out the vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Tim Keller said this, he says, Mishpat's most basic meaning is to treat people equitably. It means acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of the case, regardless of race or social status. Anyone who does the same wrong should be given the same penalty. But it means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. Listen here. It also means giving people their rights. Mishpat is giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. Justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. And you find this all over the Bible. I'm not just cherry picking here. We see it in Proverbs. Um, You can uh, if you could go to the next slides. Yeah, Proverbs, we see it in Jeremiah. We have to do some speed reading here because of time. And we see it in Proverbs 21.3. It says, tell us what to do, it tells us to do what is right, tzedakah, and just, mishpat, and that this is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Okay, let's return to the narrative because, spoiler, Abraham and his descendants don't live this out. They do go through times of unjust oppression themselves, but they also frequently become the, imp- the oppressors, committing injustice against the vulnerable. And now this is not unique to the biblical narrative. Throughout history to the present day, humanity redefines good and evil to fit our own, for our own power, often exploiting other people. And we see this in, the sp- in our spiritual forefathers in Canada with the treatment of indigenous peoples. And this is true for all of us. Theologian Richard Twist says this, because of sin, people and nations are both victims and victimizers and are therefore guilty of all manner of abuse and selfishness. We are all guilty. 
But here we reach the surprising and beautiful message of the gospel. God's response to humanity's injustice, to humanity's disregard for the inherent dignity of their fellow man is to give us a gift. Jesus. Jesus truly lived out righteousness and justice, tzedakah and mishpat, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty, on behalf of me and you, so that we can be declared righteous before God, so that we can be reconciled to our creator. 2 Corinthians 5.17-21 to says this, If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting their sins against them. And he committed to us the message of reconciliation. The entire biblical narrative, human history up to today has been about God reconciling creation, reconciling people back to himself. God broke down the barrier and reconciled us. We have come together as a new kind of family. This is biblical reconciliation. Okay, you still with me? We're still in the car? Have we lost anybody? Okay, if I lost you and you were sleeping, I'll give you a recap. Humanity is made in the image of God to live out his definition of good and evil. Mm -hmm. Through righteousness and justice, but Surprise, we didn't commit. We redefine good and evil to benefit ourselves, often at the expense of others. Others who are also image bearers. In response, over and over again, God works to reconcile his creation, ultimately giving his own body, his life for reconciliation. And now we are given that same ministry. So it's important to acknowledge both the individual nature and the corporate nature of our faith and our identity. And what I mean by that is, so I accept Jesus into my heart. That is how I have salvation. It's not because of my mom or my dad or my friend. It is a relationship between me and God. However, we are called the body of Christ. We are called to be in community. We are called the bride of Christ. There's a corporate nature to our faith. In the same way, reconciliation is both. It is an individual responsibility and it is a corporate responsibility. We're not off the hook. But it, there's something beautiful about this when it comes to, our, comes to our identity. So you hold, you, you, you bear the image of God. What a beautiful thing. And your culture, where you come from, that bears God's image as well. It reflects the beautiful diversity and creativity and complexity of our creator. Revelation 7-9 describes the kingdom of God, that every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every language is worshiping God. If you could go to the Revelation 7, 9, thank you. I just want to prove that that's biblical. Have my... (laughs) So church, our faith isn't meant to look one way. It's not meant to look like the ripped jeans and the super trendy jacket on stage, like, I don't know, singing Hillsong or Bethel. It's supposed to look, we're supposed to recognize every tongue, every tribe, every nation. It's colorful, it's loud, there's a lot of different things here. Because reconciliation honors and celebrates the unique pieces of God that, ex- that exist in each person and in each culture. So this should deeply encourage you, everything that I've said. Because you are inherently valuable. Where you come from, your culture, your heritage reflects your creator. 
You are deserving of dignity, respect, and care no matter what you think of yourself. No matter what you've been told, you are good. You have inherent worth because of the one whom you reflect. And nothing you do or can't or don't do will ever change that. It is written into your DNA as a human being. But, church, this should also grieve us. For this dignity and worth is written into each person, and we don't often treat others with the respect they deserve and the respect we are called to give. Activist and theologian Lisa Sharon Harper puts it this way, humanity is made in the image of God. To slap another human is to slap the image of God. To lie to another human is to lie to the image of God. To exploit another human is to exploit the image of God, to commit acts of physical, emotional, psychological, sexual, political, and economic violence against fellow humans is an attempt to crush the image of God on earth. Reconciliation is a call to see both ourselves and others as the image of God. It is a call to live out this identity, living out tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. But what do we do with all of this? This is all great, but what, how do we live this out in our lives? Well, I have a five-step roadmap for all of you who are type A. Also, for those of you who are feeling sleepy and hungry, five points left. Yeah, amen, right? Okay, the first step to reconciliation is to remember. To learn what has happened, to acknowledge it, and take ownership. Major historical wounds and injustices in history often don't come from just one person's actions. They normally come from larger institutions and systems, which often makes us as individuals, we feel off the hook for taking responsibility. To truly confess and make things right, it's crucial to recognize our connection to larger groups, like our country, our cultural background, the church. Without this individual and personal acknowledgement, we can't heal, and old conflicts just get worse. Okay, let me explain this from a more biblical perspective. Theologian Richard Twist says this, many of the great prayer warriors of the Bible approached God with a sense of shame and embarrassment for the sins and wickedness of their forefathers. They did not disassociate themselves from their ancestors' sins, and nor did they try to absolve themselves from all sense of personal responsibility for the resultant condition of their nation. Instead, they faced with stark honesty the corruption around them and owned it as theirs. They identified their nation's sinful history as their present-day responsibility. So Nehemiah is actually a really great study on this. If you, don't, if you aren't familiar for, of this story, it's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah. So it's easy to find if you want to check my, check my points. But Nehemiah takes place in the 5th century BCE during a time of exile for the Israelites. And the story follows this man who is Jewish in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, which is in ruins. So it starts off and we learn that Nehemiah is a cupbearer to this foreign king, which is actually a very prestigious role. He would have been born into exile. He would have grown up in this foreign land. And one day he receives news that deeply troubles him. Jerusalem, the city of his ancestors, lays in ruins. The walls are broken down. And Nehemiah, the Bible tells us, breaks down and weeps for days. 
And then he says this, I confess the sins we, in a prayer to God, he says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. Nehemiah wept bitterly over the the beloved city that he had never seen but felt deeply connected to. His tears were not just for the physical ruin of the city, but also for the spiritual desolation of his people. In his anguish, he fell to his knees and confessed the sins of his forefathers, acknowledging the collective guilt that had led to Jerusalem's downfall. Despite having no direct involvement in the sins that had caused the city's ruin, Nehemiah carried the burden of his people's past. He confessed the sin because he was part of the history. And this is what I want us to, to hear in this story. Despite Nehemiah's, I guess, perceived lack of connection to the event, and despite his comfort and, and his, his position of comfort and privilege in the court, he felt a deeper responsibility to his people and to God. And his personal revival led to a national revival. Like Nehemiah, we have to identify with the wrongs of our past, of our country's past, of our churches, of our, um, our religion's past. And we have to own them as they relate to the oppression of indigenous people. And also, this is not a distant history, like with, like with Nehemiah. This is not in the past. The last residential school closed in 1996, and that's the year I was born, 27 years ago. This is not a distant history. Every single indigenous person you meet is directly impacted by this in some way. These institutions forcibly ripped children away from their parents and their families and their communities and attempted to get rid of indigenous culture. Children were told they were backwards, that their culture was evil and demonic, and they were made to feel shame for their innermost self. Children experienced verbal and and physical and sexual and spiritual abuse at the hands of those who were supposed to teach and care for them. And the government funded these institutions, but it was often the church that ran them. And this happened for generations, over 150 years. It was a legacy of trauma that has led to the current state of poverty and exploitation of indigenous peoples. But church, one of the biggest injustices here is that, the, is that indigenous people's identity, the truth of their God-given worth and dignity was slandered. It was cursed, and not by non-believers who we can easily distance ourselves from. It was done by believers in the name of our God. In the name of Jesus, the, ch- the church tore down the very thing that Jesus died to reconcile and heal, that all who believe are righteous before God, and that, all, and that all are equal before God, and that all humans are worthy of dignity and care and honor because of who their creator is. We are part of this history, and we must remember this as we learn the history of our nation. Okay, the second step is to lament. We shy away from this in our culture. We constantly have a distraction. But lament is a very, is an, it's important to our faith. Nehemiah wept for days when he heard about the state of Jerusalem. He wept, mourned, and fasted the state of Jerusalem. Um, you, thank you. We both as individuals and as a church need to lament and mourn the injustice and oppression of our indigenous brothers and sisters because they have not been seen or treated as, as image bearers of our creator. In fact, the opposite. 
this revelation of Imago Dei, Jesus' sacrifice to reconcile us back to God, back to the original intention, into family, should make the injustices done against indigenous peoples the original appointed stewards of this land break our hearts. We actually, this should, we, this should break our hearts. And we need to give ourselves space for it to break our hearts. And we have to sit in that. Because lament leads us to confession and repentance, which is the third step. So lament led Nehemiah to confession. Confession acknowledging the sins of his forefathers and his responsibility by connection. Indigenous theologian Richard Twist offers this thought on the process of reconciliation. He says, it seems to me that there is an order to the process of reconciliation. First, there is the acknowledgement of injustice or sin that produces sorrow in the souls of men. Second, that sorrow, if allowed to go deeper, produces godly remorse. Third, if that person remains open, the Holy Spirit can take remorse deeper yet. Giving birth to repentance, it is only in the fertile seedbed of repentance that true reconciliation can find life. We must confess and repent, and this must be both individual in our own hearts and corporate, as a community as an, and as a church. Theologian Tim Mackey says this, he says, Some people actively perpetuate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures that they take for granted. History has shown that often the oppressed can turn into the oppressors when in power. So we all participate in injustice actively or passively, even unintentionally. We have inherited a legacy of oppression that we must face. But our guilt is not limited to association. Many of us, myself included, have benefited from the unjust social structures created out of colonization and the policies of the Indian Act. We're literally on Treaty 7 land right now, meaning that we're here based on broken promises from the government to the original peoples of this land. We have benefited from the oppression, even if it's unknowingly. And for those of you who are online, who maybe aren't in this specific territory, I'd encourage you to learn the history of your land because colonization has touched every country, every nation. It's not limited to here in Canada. We must confess and repent, but we don't stop here. The next step is to listen. And, and now I, I just want to have a little disclaimer here. I know this community. Journey Church is a community of compassion and one that is generous and desires to love people. And so I know that I don't need to convince you this morning that this is something worth caring about, and I'm not trying to chastise us. But I think the temptation here, because of our, of our, of our love for people, is, is, is to immediately begin, ask, begin asking, this is horrible, okay, what can I do to help? What can I do to be part of the solution? How can I help solve this problem? And I get it. I ask the same questions when I began my own journey of healing and reconciliation and reconnection to my culture. Um, early on in my journey, I was actually challenged by a mentor who is both indigenous and a believer. And we were asking, and I was asking her about needs and how I can best help. And she challenged me and said, don't ask how you can help. Ask what you can learn. So it's tempting to jump into action and not include others in the conversation without listening. And we must be slow to speak and quick to, quick to listen, yes? 
That's straight from the Bible, guys. I'm not making that up. For too long, we have seen indigenous people as a problem. As problems to be solved, as people to be helped, as solely a mission field. When we should be seeing them as part of our family, our body, as people holding a piece of our creator, as image bearers deserving of dignity and care, as people we have much to learn from. My friends, the church is limping without the theological interpretations of our indigenous brothers and sisters. We have much to learn for, in things like stewarding creation, living collectively, having lessons from creation, along with many other things. A quick side note, one indigenous theologian that I've learned so much, and I've quoted him several times today, is Richard Twiss. He has a book called One Church, Many Tribes. And I would suggest everyone to reach it or to read it. Our leadership team will actually be doing a book study on it. We are image bearers both individually and corporately. And we have to remember this in how we learn about scripture and how we read scripture. So reconciliation isn't about just righting wrongs. It's about getting closer to our creator, about getting to know him better. And we can't do that if we only see from the lens of one culture. And this goes beyond just indigenous interpretations of scripture. This means we have to learn from our Latin American brothers and sisters and read their interpretations of scripture. It means we should be reading from our, our African brothers and sisters and reading their interpretations and our Asian brothers and sisters. Also, the Bible, like Jesus was, the thing that we also have to understand, the Western church has been in a place of power and privilege, and we interpret scripture through that. But Jesus came to this earth in a time of severe oppression. The Jewish people would have read scripture in an entirely different, different way because of their oppression. And we must learn from our brothers and sisters who have been marginalized because they see scripture entirely different and arguably much more accurate than we do. And this also means, this is also a bit of a side note, but for those of us from different cultures, we need your interpretations. We need you to speak up and speak into our own lives and our teachings. One last point, justice through partnership. Rich Viodas offers important insight on reconciliation. He says there can be no true reconciliation without justice. For relationships to be fully re restored, things have to be made right. Many who sincerely yearn for reconciliation want to merely name the sins of the past, wash one another's feet, and then just move on. While these gestures may be moving, the larger systemic social injustices continue unhindered, creating fragmented relationships and ruined lives. We can't have reconciliation without justice. They go together. Mishpat means taking, making other people's problems our problems. It means advocating for the vulnerable and working to change social structures that oppress them. It means living out Micah 6-8 every day, acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God. Justice and reconciliation means taking every person seriously as a mago day, as image bearers of God most high. This means treating others with dignity and respect and taking their lead in their own empowerment. I have one last point to make in, 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 this, in this point. Richard Twist says this about reconciliation. He says, I would love to see some of our Anglo church leaders when asked to help a native church say yes, but on one condition. Only if you will in turn send your pastors and your leaders to come and equip us with the grace and gifting God has given you as native people.
When that comes, it will verify that we are seen by our Anglo brethren as equal co-laborers in the mission of the church. Our church has an opportunity to partner with um, uh, a project my sister and I are building. Um, we are working currently to partner with indigenous communities to combat exploitation and human trafficking. And I don't have time today to share with you about what this project looks like in our story, but I hope to soon in a workshop. But our church doesn't want to just be a church that checks a box once a year and talks about reconciliation. This is, this is a radical way of life. And it's not just convenient or easy. It requires us to love how God intended us to as his representatives, advocating for justice and making other people's problems our problems, truly living out Micah 6, 8, seeing others in their full identities as image bearers of God and protecting that. It requires us to face the ugliness of our history and acknowledge the fact that the pain and oppression is not buried in the past, but it is a current reality. It requires us to own our responsibility just like Nehemiah and to confess our guilt and to repent. It requires us to hold our tongues and to listen first. It requires us to humble ourselves, recognizing that our way is not the right and only way. And that we, in fact, have much to learn from others, both individually and corporately. It requires us to step boldly into partnership, acknowledging our Indigenous brothers and sisters as our co-laborers and honoring them as such. It is a call back to our true identities as image bearers of our Creator. Reconciliation is a message of hope and of the deep and fierce love of our Creator and of our Savior. It is a message of good news of a family united in Christ. This is a message of hope for all of us. It leads us to honor our cultures, to honor where we come from, and it leads us into further intimacy with our God, with Jesus. And it leads us into whole living with one another. I'll leave you with this quote that gives me so much hope. It's from the Talmud, which is, a, um, which is Jewish writing and Jewish law. But it says, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now. Love mercy now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you so much for giving your life to reconcile us back to you. Thank you for calling us into family. Thank you that we are all worthy of dignity and care and that you see us with so much love and compassion. Would you give us the courage to face our past? And would you give us the compassion and humility to act with love? God, would you lead us forward in this path of reconciliation as a community? We honor you and we praise you. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.